That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. The second reading is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you, James. Morning, everyone. My name is Pete. We come to this climactic passage in Philippians this morning, uh, which is going to be our focus. The the reading in 2 Corinthians was for background, which we'll come to. Um, Warning. Uh, The passage, as you might have noticed, it touches on contentment and giving and money. So rest assured that as a Brit, I feel as uncomfortable about it as you do, if not more. Um, It reminds me of a story Matt Fuller told me where uh, there was a... Uh, a widow, I think it was, in a, in a church. And the pastor was conscious this widow was struggling to get by and manage the household. And then her oven broke. And, oh, how am I going to survive without an oven? So the pastor, full of compassion, says, well, I'll find you some money. So I think he managed to acquire 200 pounds or something in, in cash. Puts the money in an envelope. And he's in a hurry to get to his chores. So he says to his wife, oh, you're, you're, you're passing her house today, aren't you? Would you mind just put... Um, Philippians 3.19 on the front of the envelope and give her the money. Don't put my name on it. I don't, I don't want to know who it comes from. Just say someone in the church has given the money. Anyway, the envelope goes off. 
She opens the envelope with joy and discovers 200 pounds for the oven. Fantastic. Looks up Philippians 3.19 and discovers, oh, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame and their mind is on earthly things. Oh, no. And she thinks this is, this is a sort of rebuke. Someone's given me money, but you really, your mind's on earthly things. When actually the pastor meant Philippians 4.19, which we'll get to. My God will meet all your needs according to, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So, potentially awkward subject. Let's pray for God's help, and then we'll look at this amazing passage. Father, we thank you for that promise, which is right up there. You will meet all our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And we pray that this morning, whoever we are, wherever we've come from, whatever mindset we're in, you please bless us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All I want is to be happy. Perhaps you've heard that. Perhaps you've heard that recently. It's, it's kind of become the trump card in our society, hasn't it? You could say that, um, and it's like, boom, you can't answer me. All I want is to be happy. That's my highest aim in life. I think it's the trump card that even, even beats the, uh, the best things that we aspire to, you know? So uh, you might say of someone, ah, well, yes, he does have the perfect job the perfect salary, the perfect-looking family, and the perfect physique. But is he happy? Ah. <laughs> and you can kind of get to someone that way. Are, are you actually happy? Uh, people tend to either, if they, if they really want to be happy, I, I've observed, they, they tend to either agonize about whether they're happy or advertise that they are happy. You know, so they'll, they'll either agonize about whether they're happy or not, and, oh, should I change the job, or should I change my living arrangements, or should I change my gym membership or something, you know, I'm agonizing about it because all I want is to be happy. Or they'll advertise it. I found it. You know, I have found a diet that, if you follow it, will make you utterly happy. I'm on the meditation regime. I'm doing this exercise that is absolutely incredible, and really you should know about it because I'm happy. I've achieved what I came for. It's quite hard to answer that sort of thing, isn't it? If, if someone says, I'm happy, or I'd love to be happy, where do you go from that? In our passage, well, Paul does go towards that. You see, in verse 13, beg your pardon, verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to be able to say? I, me, yes, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Oh, yes, please. I'd really like that secret. What's the formula? Tell me. I want to know. So here you go. You're in the right place this morning because we're going to look at the secret of being content. It's worth saying just as we start, this, this does sum up quite a lot of Ephesians. Philippians, so he, he gets towards the end of his letter. And I think we'll see that lots of the threads that we've been looking at for the last two months as a church are drawn together here when he says, I've learned the secret of being content. Really, you could divide the passage into two halves. He, he talks about himself and his secret of contentment, and then he talks about the Philippians and their giving. I think it might just be better if we cut it slightly differently. So we'll talk about three questions. What is contentment? Why is it so good? And how do I get it? What is contentment? Why is it so good? And how do I get it? So firstly, if we're looking at the secret of contentment, let's just make sure we're clear. What is contentment? This is what the experts in the dictionary would tell us. It's an emotional or mental state of satisfaction 
being at ease in one's situation, body, and mind. Okay, so emotional or mental state of satisfaction, being at ease in one's situation, body, and mind. There's a nice example of this in the news earlier this week. Sam, have we got some slides about Gary Lineker? Here we go. Gary Lineker, Match of the Day presenter, got into a bit of trouble here for tweeting this, if you can read it. Uh, Wonder what makes some people feel by sheer good fortune of place of birth superior to others. I need a lie down. Commenting on the migrant crisis. Um, Controversial, as it turned out, because then this happened. MPs turn up the heat on BBC to sack discredited political activist, two million pound pundit Gary Lineker as a sports journalist. He can't be both. So people kind of flew off a handle because you, you're just a sports pundit. You present match of the day. Why do you deserve to have a public opinion on the migrant crisis? To which he responded, finally, getting a bit of a spanking today on Twitter, but things could be worse. Imagine just for a second being a refugee having to flee from your home. So look, whatever our opinions on the migrant crisis might be, there's a guy who's got some degree of contentment this week, hasn't he? However many thousands of people are weighing in on him on Twitter saying, you should lose your job, you don't deserve £2 million a year, what are you doing still being here? MPs, in fact. And he's able to say, things could be worse. Imagine being a refugee having to flee. In, in a different situation, I think I'd still be content. That's the sort of contentment, isn't it? Thinking about our culture, it's noticeable that I think there's three broad categories of contentment. Um, there's a sort of, I need more contentment. There's a sort of, I need less contentment. And there's a sort of, I'm content with what I have contentment. So if, you, if, I, if it's a sort of, I need more contentment, then if I just have this, and maybe that, and then perhaps that afterwards, then I'll be content. I just want a little bit more. There's a sort of, uh, I'm content with what I have contentment, which is, I'm just going to be appreciative of everything that's in front of me. What I've got at the moment, that's enough. And there's a sort of, I need less contentment. I think that one's slightly counterintuitive, but um, Sarah and I were watching a program on TV earlier in the week about people who have up sticks and they've moved out to Wales to live a sustainable lifestyle. And their aim is to have 75% of their energy, everything needs, coming from their seven-acre plot of land. So there's obviously a sort of contentment there for them. You know, I, I, I need less. Similar thing in, in a book, this book here called uh, Lighten Up which is not just uh, lighten up and be happy. The philosophy of this American guy, Peter Walsh, is lighten up, literally get rid of some stuff. Lighten up and you'll be more content. He says this. If you know me, you know that all of the work I do has one common starting point. Clutter. No matter if it's in your home, your head, or your heart. Clutter is anything that gets between you and the life you want to be living. It's no different when we talk of financial health. Clutter is anything that impedes you from achieving the life you want. To make real progress is to achieve permanent, long-term change. You have to start with the vision you have for the life you want. So here we go. A simple, reasonable, considered, achievable vision that is the expression of what you want for your life. That's what I'm talking about. It's as simple and profound as that. I couldn't agree more. Seems entirely reasonable, doesn't it? Decide what you want, have a simple, clear vision for it, and you go for it. That's what contentment is, and I I think we all agree on it. So what's Christian contentment? What is the simple, clear Christian vision which, if I go for it, will leave me utterly content and presumably is better than all the others if we're to believe the Bible? Well, look, here we go. Verses 11 and 12, Paul starts on this theme. 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, or I know what it is to have less, and I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to, to, to have more. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He might say he's tried prosperity, he's tried austerity. And he says, I'm, I've, I've figured out a way of being content in either one. But we know from Paul, from his life, and particularly from the letter of Philippians, which we've been looking at together, this is a profound Christ-centered contentment. So we're under no delusions by the end of this letter. What makes you content? It's Christ. So to take our dictionary definition of contentment, we might say, for Paul, contentment is an emotional, mental state of satisfaction, being at ease with Christ in one's situation, body and mind. Okay? So what is contentment? It's, it's a particular Christian contentment we're talking about here, being, being with Christ. Second question, why is it so good then? Okay, Paul, if, if you're prepared to sit in a prison cell and write this, why, what's so good about it? Let's have a good careful look at this. Um, just worth noting as we dive in, um, it's not just about being happy. If for Paul it was, it was just about this simple emotional feeling, oh, fantastic, I feel happy today, I have achieved it, that's the secret. I think we'd have to reflect that's quite a selfish thing, Paul. If you just want to feel happy all the time, then where's everyone else in your universe? So we're not just talking about that. Four things under this question, why is it so good? Firstly, it enables sacrificial generosity. I think these might pop up on the screen. Firstly, it's because this contentment enables sacrificial generosity, verses 14 to 16. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, he says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia... Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. We heard in the the other reading from 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul kind of boasts about the Philippian church, which was a church in Macedonia, that's the region, Philippi, the city. And he says, these guys, I mean, they're amazingly generous. They just sent me aid again and again and again. The details here seem to mean that... um, when Paul was nearby, just down the road, that was when he was in Macedonia, in, in Thessalonica, a city just down the road. You sent me aid then, once, twice, again. And then when I went further afield, when I carried on to like, southern Greece, to Corinth, you, you just kept sending it to me. It was incredible. So it didn't matter where, whether I was near or far. I think of it this way. If I'm constantly fretting about money, then it's a bit like I've got a closed fist on my money, you know, a, a banknote in here, holding it really tight. And uh, I can't imagine ever opening my fist except when someone prizes it out from me. It's a really closed fist on money. And it's hard, isn't it, to have a different attitude to money if you're worried about it. You've got a, a really tight fist, all your muscles are tensed. What Paul's saying is, with the secret of contentment, it's like I've discovered something else. It's like I've, I've, my, I've had my attention drawn towards something else. And for him, we know it's Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 7, I want to know Christ. I want to know him better and better. It's like he's just fixed on Christ. And of course, what happens to your fist, which you used to have tightly clenched around your money? Well, it just begins to loosen. The closed fist becomes open because I've had my vision distracted by something else. He's had that distracted by Jesus Christ. So sacrificial generosity is enabled by this. I think... 
I think our culture doesn't understand this. You know, Western culture, which sort of says charitable giving is a good thing, doesn't seem to entirely get it. I say that because I looked up the, the average monthly giving for someone in the UK to charity. Do you know what it is every month, the, the average UK adult? 11 pounds. That's the, that's the median, apparently, that someone gives to charity. Now, on the one hand, that's, that's quite good, isn't it? 11 pounds that's not going to you, it's going to other stuff. On the other hand, oh, 11 pounds. If you take the sort of principle of tithing, you know, 10% of your income, oh, it's not really 10% of your monthly income, average UK citizen, is it? 11 pounds isn't very much. On reflection, I wonder if we get guilt-tripped into giving by, you know, we watch a TV appeal and some incredibly emotional footage is shown for a couple of minutes with music playing in the background and we see the need all of a sudden before our eyes and we think, gosh, I've got to do something and we give, good, but it's guilty giving. Oh, I should really do something about this. Or, you know, a similar thing, you walk past somebody on the street and you say, gosh, your need is so great, I I must give, but it's a sort of guilty spur of the moment thing induced by the emotion. Paul seems to be talking about here is a a sacrificial generosity which is calculated and premeditated and lifelong. It's not just sporadic. So it's sacrificial generosity. Secondly, under why is it so good? Um, It pleases God. Verses 17 and 18. Not that I desire your gifts, he says, but what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They were a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Striking the way he puts that, isn't it? They were a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's like we're supposed to smell it. We're told in the Old Testament that there are occasions when people sacrifice things. And, you know, it was literally a sacrifice. You'd get a lamb out of your herd, flock. You'd sacrifice it, not so good on the agricultural terms, and you'd, you'd kill it. You know, it would bleed there on the altar and then you'd burn it. And we're told just a few times, for instance, when Noah sacrifices something after the flood or occasionally in the Old Testament law that God smells that and it's pleasing to him. Seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Why would that be pleasing to God? He just killed an animal. But, of course, for them it meant, look, God, I, I want you more than I want this physical prosperity I I would rather have you my God than than, than my heart went to all my riches and wealth because that was a very tangible proof that was your currency in those days the guideline in the Old Testament of course was was 10% it's a bit like when you you know when you go to someone's house for dinner and you think it's going to be an ordinary supper and you walk in and realise oh I think you've roasted something "Mm, that's really really good and it turns out they've bought the most enormous joint of meat they've just spent a packet on it and the whole dinner is opulent and brilliant just because you were coming around oh thank you this relationship must really mean a lot to you you spent this much on it this is a sort of fragrant offering in the New Testament we talked about the Old Testament in the New Testament the principle of 10% giving doesn't get repeated but perhaps we're to have it in mind. But what does get repeated here is this is to be sacrificial giving. This is to be something that right, does kind of hurt. In the same way that if I took a, a, a lamb out of my flock and I slaughtered it, I'm never going to get to use that lamb for wool or meat or anything. 
If I take a note out of my wallet and I give it away to somebody else, I'm never going to get to use that for any other purpose. Oh, that hurts. That's sacrificial. And that pleases God because it shows him where my heart is. By the way, I I don't want anybody to misunderstand me, okay? Please, I'm not saying you give money away, God's pleased with you, he'll let you into heaven. But like my son, you know, who you saw earlier on. If, I, I really like seeing him share his toys, especially with his younger brother. Uh, it's lovely to see that. It doesn't make him my son when he shares stuff. But it is, it is really lovely to see. I look at him sharing stuff and I think, that's really pleasing to me. That's wonderful. But it doesn't make him my son. There's no status change there. Okay, so why is contentment so good? It enables sacrificial generosity. It pleases God. Thirdly, under this second question, it lets you focus on other things. I find it quite striking that it's got to this point in the letter before Paul has even brought up money. Actually, if you boil down the, I don't know, the, the, the business content of the letter to the Philippians into a couple of sentences, it could be, got the money you sent, Epaphroditus arrives safely. Thanks very much. You know, there's, a, there's a practical side, which it, it seems from hints like chapter 2, verse 25, they, 25, they'd sent some money, and Paul's sort of giving a verbal receipt. Terrific, thank you. But of course, we, if, if we've studied this letter, we know he spent ages talking about other stuff. He's intent on encouraging them and pointing out things about their spiritual work which they might be able to do better and thanking God for them. And I think that must have been a big encouragement perhaps particularly to the wealthier Christians in Philippi who had dug deep and they'd given money and they get this terrific letter back saying, I'm interested in you. I'm interested in your Christian walk. I thank God for this and that. By the way, thank you for the money. That really helped. You see, he wasn't all about the money. And uh, that attitude allowed him to focus on other things. And fourthly, under this point, why is it so good? Um, Because it's resourced by Christ's riches. We come to this amazing verse, chapter 419, have a look. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He'll meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Stoicism, which sometimes characterizes people today, maybe British people, you know, um, is this sort of attitude of self-sufficiency. I will meet all my needs according to my inner strength, according to my stiff upper lip, according to my ability to dig deep within myself and find everything I might possibly need. This is quite different, you see. My God will meet all your needs according to his external riches, something outside of you, which is in Christ Jesus. So if I can phrase it this way, what's the content of your contentment? Where where do the riches come from? They come from within yourself or from somewhere else? For example, if, you're, if the content of your contentment is your health, then your, health is only, your contentment is only reliable as your health is, you see? Or if, if the content of your contentment is popularity, then your contentment is as volatile as your popularity. If the content of your contentment is the financial market, then your contentment is as changeable as the financial market. If the content of your contentment is your family and how they're doing, then your contentment is as fragile as your family is. 
or if you're, the content of your contentment is your body image, you know, how, how you happen to look at any given day, week, or month, then your contentment is as changeable as your body. We might just take that as a test case, just to see if this actually works. Okay, we've been considering these questions. Why is Christian contentment so good? Does it, does it meet the test of my body image? And when I look in the mirror, what do I think of myself? Well, we talked about um, Christian contentment enabling sacrificial generosity. If I'm fixated on my body and what it might look like, is it possible to be sacrificially generous? I suppose it's possible, but it's going to be difficult because this is all I can think about. We talked about whether it pleases God. Is it possible if I'm fixated on my body image to please God? I suppose it's possible, but actually that's the focus of my attention, so I'm not really looking over there. Is it possible if I'm fixated on my body image to focus on other things? Well, no, that's kind of the point. I'm I'm thinking about this all the time. And is it resourced by Christ's riches, my desire for a different body? Well, not really. It's resourced by how often I can get to the gym or what I put into my body. By the way, I know I'm talking about body image, which is sensitive. I'm not saying don't exercise a diet might never be the best thing. Doctor counseling, all that isn't important. But you see, what I'm, you see my point? What are you focused on? Is it that or is it him? That's why Christian contentment is so good because it focuses on Jesus who is the indescribable riches of God. So third question, how do I get it? I want the secret of contentment. Tell me how to get it, preacher. Okay, look, verse 13 Verse 12, beg your pardon, keep doing that. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Oh, yeah, but yeah, but how? <laughs> I read that paragraph and I think, ooh, just tell me a little bit more here. I want, I want some more information. Come on, Paul, give me, give me a bit more. It's slightly frustrating in that sense. He, he drops in that I've got the secret of contentment and doesn't expand on it very much. Of course, you do get verse 19, as we've seen. is the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And what's more, and he's written as a whole letter about it. Secret of contentment, knowing Christ. You could put it this way, I suppose, in, in terms of our, our catchphrase, the content of my contentment is Christ. And I'll never move on from that. The content of my contentment is Christ. Sometimes I lose my glasses. I wear contact lenses right now, but sometimes I lose my glasses because I put them on top of my head. I feel ridiculous because I'll look around the house. Where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? And I realize they're here. Oh, stupid. Um, but I feel it's a little bit like that. You know, I, I've been looking all around for the secret of contentment. Oh, I had him all along. It's Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I've always had him. I just need to look through the glasses and enjoy the world this way. Let me just suggest some practical ways you can look through the glasses, that you can learn more the secret of contentment. Uh, This is really drawing the threads together of the letter, so there's no rocket science here. Firstly, practice. It's striking the way he phrases this in verse 12, isn't it? I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He actually puts that in the perfect tense, which means it's a, it's a, it's a past event with a present effect. I, I have learned and I continue to learn the secret of being content. So practice. 
particular ways you might practice are you know, as follows. Uh, give away. I mean, we've seen this as a, as a theme in Philippians. It's not about here I am, it's about there you are. I, I give myself away like a drink offering. We're to copy Paul when he does that, and he's on that theme in chapter 4, verse 9, just before our passage. When I was at university, our uh, vicar was a man called Mark Ashton, and um, he had this principle which he used to tell us if we were anxious about our money as students, which we often were. Um, He'd say, whenever I hear the devil just whispering to me, you're giving away too much, you're giving away too much, slow down. He said, do you know what I do? I just give a little bit more devil finds that really annoying <laughs> just a little bit more and um, that's what I do it's a practical way of giving more and more I found in my own experience it's, in, it's incredible to be on the receiving end of people's generosity like this you know when you didn't expect them to give and whether it's in ministry or some other daily need here's a check wow for exactly what I needed but I didn't tell you about it this is just welling up out of the sacrificial generosity of your heart Another way we might practice um, the secret of contentment, uh, being thankful. We've seen that sort of woven into the whole text of Philippians, haven't we? Thankfulness, because I'm in Christ, is a wonderful theme of Christian contentment. Giving away, being thankful. Investing in others. Can I invest in other people? Maybe I can... um, I can desire to bring them closer to Jesus Christ. I don't want you to focus on what you're grabbing onto now. I want to bring you closer to him. I'll invest in you that way. Of course, maybe it's, often that's the people we're closest to, you know, the, the, the neighbors, the, the spouse, the people in my house, the colleagues that God has put around me. I'll invest in you in that sense. And it'll bring me contentment. Of course, objection, somebody might say, I pray for contentment. I tried to invest in other people and God didn't give me the person to invest in. What would I say to that? Well, I think with the words of Paul in Philippians, we could say, you do have the perfect person tied to you. you know, God has given you Jesus Christ. So you have the perfect spouse, you have the perfect senior pastor, you have the perfect friend, you have the perfect boss in Jesus Christ who, who God has put near you, tied to you in the most intimate way. It's the, it's the most wonderful thing. So I don't need to feel like I'm not content because I don't have a relationship like that. And furthermore, in the, in the ups and downs of every, everyday life, I think Paul, from his experience, would say, sometimes it's, it's in lack. Sometimes it's in want or austerity that the Lord teaches me as well as in prosperity and plenty and being well fed and Paul had obviously learned that another way to learn contentment I suffer for the gospel and we've seen that again and again and that's why Paul can write this letter from a drippy cell somewhere in Rome probably infested with rats wearing some tattered old clothes which stink and he can say I've learned the secret of being content sometimes I suffer for the gospel and it's there that I appreciate what really matters And sometimes, well, all the time, I, I press on towards heaven, finally. So I practice contentment by giving away, by being thankful, by investing in others, by suffering for the gospel, and by pressing on towards heaven. I'll finish just with a story about the, uh, the vicar from my home church where I, where I grew up, who died of cancer last year, 
and he left uh, aged 49, he got cancer and he left behind three young children and a wife and a church who loved him very, very much. And of course it seemed like a tragic waste for this man to die at that age, leaving behind all that. And on his, on his deathbed, when it became obvious he was dying, his last words were, Jesus is everything. And apparently he said that again and again all, to, all the way through the night, the night he died. Jesus is everything. And um, the church made a tapestry of it, and they put it on the wall there. So if you go there, it's got this amazing church tapestry that says Jesus is everything, which of course means the world to them because it's their pastor's last words. Jesus is everything. And it seems to me there is a man who, on his dying bed, when everything had been stripped away, all he had was a wasted body and a few minutes left, was able to say, Jesus is everything. Let's pray that that would be our attitude. Almighty God, in whom are all the riches of heaven and of creation, come to us in Jesus Christ. We struggle with this and we often feel discontent, but we want to learn by trial and through knowing Jesus Christ the secret of being content. So have mercy on us, we pray. As we live our lives in this city, please teach us the secret of contentment through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.